recorded in room 233 of the Texas Tech University School of Veterinary Medicine. This is the Rate of Vet Podcast. Today, Dr. Clayton Kopp will be interviewing advocate for animal welfare and shelter medicine, Dr. Kent Glenn. And later, Dr. Jennifer Cosio will be interviewing the owner of the Lubbock Small Animal Emergency Clinic and Rockin' P Veterinary Services in Idaho, Texas, adjunct professor and one of our original clinical partners, Dr. Janie Pope. Okay, so good morning, afternoon, night, whatever it happens to be, to whoever happens to be listening out there. Uh, this is Clayton Cobb, sorry, Clayton Danger Cobb. And actually, since then, Jennifer Kojal, Dr. Jennifer Kojal, has added on Mayhem. It's one of my Mayhem. names. <laughs> so now I'm Clayton Danger Mayhem Cobb. That's but, how I felt when I got to the last three or four slides and I didn't have enough time. <laughs> Mayhem. It happened. You start cruising through it. So this morning I have Dr. Kent Glenn uh, from, well, just about everywhere, and I'll let him talk a little bit about himself after this. But we had him come speak this morning in animal care and husbandry, more so concerning uh, animal shelter, care and husbandry. And then also, I mean, we went into more community experience, the responsibility of veterinarians, I mean, quite a bit of it. Uh, do you mind giving a little bit of background about yourself? Uh, yes, uh, I started out in general practice in a, out of a large practice in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and then in 1977, I moved to Graham, Texas, and uh, was in solo practice there for seven, eight years or so. Had some health problems, and then uh, went to doing uh, uh, relief work, and worked in quite a few practices doing that, and uh, did a lot of so, uh, shelter work. Uh, with those practices who were working with shelters and and actually kind of grew to love it. Did a lot of equine repro work and uh, some some other equine work, uh, general practice uh, with large and small animals. And even before that, it was 1971, graduated as a Red Raider, though. That's right. I, I, I got to bring that died up. Died in the wool Red Raider from, from 1971. <laughs> so how did that approach into small animal shelter medicine, how did that even occur? Did someone just come up to you and say, we need help? Or? Uh, well, partly that, but it also I had this uh, deep-seated thing from the time I was in school at Colorado State. We worked with shelter animals there, and and so I think we were taught to have a responsibility to the local shelters and the, and the welfare of the community, the public health, and also the, the health of the community animals. And, and so I developed that coming along that direction just to be able to uh, Oh, be part of the community that it was important that a veterinarian take his place in that part of the community. Even if he's not doing small animal medicine, you still have a responsibility to. And I think that's pretty dang common. I mean, when I was in private practice as well as, I mean, when you're the only veterinarian within several miles or the only one that's willing to jump out there and do anything, that you do have that responsibility in the shelters and the rescues, they call on you and you can't say no and you want to help. You do want to help. You do want to help, yes. And and when you have an interested group of people that start getting together in the city and saying, hey, we need to do away with this old dog pound and start having an animal shelter, then that's something that I felt like I had to be a part of as well. And so going back again, I know we're jumping around a bit, but how did you go from equine reproduction? I know you'd, we had just finished talking about it before the podcast taping, but to go from equine reproduction to shelter medicine is well, I, jump. I I was actually doing mixed practice, but uh, there are a lot of people in the area that were doing uh, mainly cutting horse breeding. And so I was involved with Junior Gray and uh, Delwyn Birch and 
a bunch of those people uh, doing uh, equine reproduction just as a general practitioner. And, and so I kind of grew with it. I had a good background coming from Colorado State where they were doing all the equine repro research while I was in college. And so I learned all of, all of those things while I was in veterinary training. And um, so I had a good background to do equine repro. Uh, it just was something that I, and I enjoyed it. I guess that's part of it. You, you kind of migrate to the things that you really enjoy. Uh, but getting to shelter medicine, it was just that I was always involved in the community. And then in, I think it was 2011, the city manager at Weatherford, we'd been rotating through, you know, doing surgery for them and things like that from Alito Vet Clinic. But in uh, 2011, they got into kind of a wreck and he came, he came to Dr. Herbal and me, he says, I need one of you guys to take this contract. Uh, and it had come from Nathan Winograd group, to be honest with you. Um, so we, I said, well, I, I'm retired. Jerry, I don't do that, I'm retired. And Dean says, Ken, if you'll take it, I'll help you. So I said, okay, well, I'll take it if Dean's willing to help me so I can get some days off to go visit grandkids and stuff like that. And, that's actually how I became a shelter veterinarian at the urging of a, of a city manager that was in a wreck at, a, at an animal shelter. And so was this before or after really getting involved in TVMA and organized veterinary medicine with welfare and shelter? It was, that was after. I mean, yeah. I was involved all the time. In fact, I'd been rotating through that same shelter for over 10 years. Uh, on Like every three or four weeks, I'd go in and do surgery on them on the adopted animals. So... And you've got quite a bit of experience, I mean, not just at shelter, but for the teaching side, veterinary technicians, and having some part in that area. They do. At Weatherford College, they have a, uh, they had a, had a uh, veterinary as assistance program, and so the students were coming through, and we were using the shelter animals for those, ch those kids, that students, to have an opportunity to learn uh, what the skills that they needed, and it, it's a good way for the students to learn. Uh, we have animals under anesthesia that they can actually learn to do venipuncture and all those procedures on animals. That, and then they learn to restrain. They learn all of the skills that they need. And they're going to get that opportunity here at Amarillo with uh, the veterinary students are going to get that opportunity with the shelter animals coming here. It's an excellent, it's a dual purpose. It helps the uh, shelter animals and it helps the students that need to learn the procedures. No, I completely agree. And we, we use models as much as possible, but it's hard to substitute the real thing for models. So we do, it's funny, Anthony's actually our mad scientist in the room right now doing the recording for us, and he's building and working on a lot of these models for us. And as soon as we become proficient in that, we take this step up to animals. Yes. The animals, though, it's our job is to find them homes. I mean, we want to want them leaving the building in better, right. better situation, better care than they were before they came here with the intention of them going off in a home somewhere, so it really is dual purpose in helping out the community. Um, so moving along kind of through this, I know you've done a lot of work with organized veterinary medicine and TVMA. Where do you kind of see shelter medicine going from here within the state of Texas? I know we had talked about this morning, it's difficult to say because the geographic landscape of Texas actually changes with viral diseases, bacterial diseases, fungal diseases, uh, even weather, so you can't really have a uniform push the entire state of Texas, but where do you see, I guess, the political political landscape going? Well, I, I think that people are more aware that of shelter animals. They're certainly adopting shelter animals at a higher rate. It's kind of fortunately become a very in thing to have adopted a shelter animal. Uh, 
And so that really helps with the unwanted animal problem. That gives us a, a place to outlet the animals that are obviously coming into the shelter. Um, our biggest, th I think our future in shelter medicine is going to be hopefully working with local veterinarians and, and others in the community to, to start to target the animals that are reproducing that are ending up in the shelter and not, not have so many coming in to begin with. They've accomplished that very well in Waco with a local ordinance that requires spaying and neutering, neutering. but the, the city actually, the city and maybe the county, they put up, I think, like $100,000 just to, if they're gonna enforce the law, then they need to help the people that really can't afford to do spaying and neutering to get their animals spayed and neutered. But they started enforcing that and their intake dropped from 12,000 to 6,000. That is something Dang. that might actually work in Amarillo. Yeah. Uh, worked well in Waco. And uh, gosh, uh, Dr. Epps, who's uh, one of my cohorts, cohorts there at Weatherford, I, he, he's, he's ready to come up and present that. If you guys want to want to try to do that at City Council of Amarillo, I'll volunteer him without him being, being here. The next advisory council meeting's coming up, isn't that correct? And so, yeah, Dr. Epps, is, he's uh, well-informed and, and part of the program. Dr. Walthall was involved in that, too, the incoming TVMA president. Yeah, we spent some time together this past weekend in San Antonio at the recent grad and student mixers at board meetings and all that. Walthall's cool man, for sure. Mm -hmm. um, so kind of two last questions. And we'll start with the first one. It's funny, I ran into Guy Lonergan in the hallway on my way in here. And he asked how you were doing, how everything's gone in class. I said, we're about to record. He goes, I got one fix for shelter medicine. I got one thing that works all the time. And it's kind of funny. I think you mentioned it like 60 times this morning. What do you think is the most important thing for these animals to do on intake? I have to, I have to say two things. <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> well, I think they need dewormed because yeah. they're in, they certainly need vaccinated. If they're not vaccinated on intake, uh, you're going to, waste a lot of money spaying and neutering and doing stuff, trying to get them out to homes and going to be a lot of heartbreak and it gets you a bad public rep, uh, public relations reputation. And that's exactly what Guy said. He goes, I know how to work shelter animals. I'm an epidemiologist. Vaccinate. That's exactly right. Said, that's, it's all epidemiology. Yeah. That's right. He said, vaccinate your way out of everything. Yeah. You need to vaccinate. Yeah. Well, we learned that, didn't we? <laughs> you vaccinate your way out. That's yeah, right. you have to. You have to. Vaccination is important. And the last question is the same question I ask everybody so far. Most people look at me like they don't know what I'm talking about. What's your sign? My sign? Yeah. I'm a Scorpio. Oh, man. He actually knew it. Guy looked <laughs> because at me like my he kids, was lost. He goes, what are you talking about? Yeah, my kids remind me of it. I'm just really not into it. <laughs> I don't know what it means either. Usually, What's your we sign? don't know what we're talking about, and we end up That's my sign. Record tech. <laughs> yeah. That's a good sign. Guns, Guns up. up. <laughs> I like it. Well, thank you for coming here today. Thank you for coming and presenting and chatting with the students and myself. We really appreciate your input and the help you do, especially with not just the SVM, but also with the city of Amarillo. And would you like to say anything on your way out? Oh, thank you for having me. I enjoyed it, and uh, it, was, it was nice being here. Right. I'm proud of you guys, too. <laughs> well, thank you. We appreciate it, and we're happy with everything that's going on so far. Thank you, sir. Good afternoon, Janie. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Yeah. So, Janie, tell us a little bit about yourself and your role as a clinical partner here. So, my name is Janie Poe. Um, I became a clinical partner at the very beginning 
Um, it's very important that the students have access to the rural communities, but our big operation right now is the Small Animal Emergency Clinic in Lubbock. Uh, how that happened is they, uh, the dean came and toured the facility and we did an interview with the COE. Is that what, is that right? Mm -hmm. And so we're excited to have students here in a few years. Awesome. So Janie, you've had a very interesting career path in veterinary medicine. So tell us a little bit where you started in veterinary medicine and how you got to where you are now, because it was a very circuitous route. Yes. So I kind of took a different route. I was originally raised in Northeast Kansas on a cow-calf operation. I went to uh, undergrad and graduate school at Kansas State. When I was at Kansas State, I did a basically a master's in feedlot production, uh, published some papers in feedlot vaccination protocols. When I graduated, I went into dairy practice because I have never really been around dairy or did any of that. So I went to Comanche, Texas and went into a dairy practice. On and off from there, I was 13 years in a mixed animal practice. And um, my husband and I raised purebred um, registered Black Angus cattle, and we wanted to move back to the Lubbock area. So now I own Lubbock Small Animal Emergency Clinic, um, and we are we just opened Rocking P Veterinary Services there in Idaloo. So we do all large animals um, herd health services and emergencies there too. Interestingly enough, when I was in veterinary school, I uh, was an EMT uh, for a job, and so like the emergency medicine just kind of all fit in. Very cool. Yeah, I knew you had a very cool story, but it's really fun to hear it. Yeah, how it, you know, all through veterinary school, all I wanted to do was cows, you mm -hmm. know, and everybody, you know, that I focused on cows. I, that's pretty much what I did all through school and therefore after, and now we're really um, focused in, in the small animal. We also have a CT scanner, do advanced procedures like endoscopy. And mm -hmm. so we do lots of fun things. Yeah. So talk, tell me a little bit as, transitioning from being a food animal practitioner to being more small animal and then going back again? Yeah, so for, it's a big transition, I would say, if you're predominantly a large animal doctor and to know all the ins and outs and intricate surgeries that may pertain to small animals. And then you, of course, need to know all the endocrinologies that go on with a small animal. So it's basically kind of re-educating yourself as far as all the important topics. But you still learn it all in veterinary school. And so it's just basically bringing all that back up. Awesome. Cool. Very neat. So what drew you to becoming a clinical partner with us? So I think it's really interesting. I had some really great mentors along the way that have really shaped where I am today. And that even from when I was in high school, I worked with a, veter a local veterinarian in my hometown. They really shaped me to like know that I wanted to be a veterinarian before I made the choice of going into veterinary school. And so, and then throughout veterinary school, I had some really key players that really guided me towards my career choice as far as cow, you know, beef cow medicine and feedlots versus, you know, dairy. And so I really wanted to give back um, and give students the same opportunities that I had without true mentorship and knowing that there's people out there to help. They just may not choose to go into large animal medicine, for instance. Um, and just stay working with cats and dogs. So I think it's a great idea to um, allow fourth-year students to get out in the community and learn all different aspects of veterinary medicine. Absolutely. Know it all, experience it all, and then you can play with it. Definitely. 
So what's a big piece of advice that you always give to students either already in vet school or students that want to go to vet school? That's exactly a good point because everybody does things differently. Every, just like in human medicine, every doctor may prescribe a different antibiotic or do a procedure a little bit differently. I always tell a lot of students to learn something from everyone year round, even if that's how you don't want to be. So if you see a certain, you know, veterinarian doing a procedure a certain way and you're like, well, I've seen another doctor doing it another way, you can definitely choose and pick and choose how to do things. But most importantly, it's, it's really important to learn how to treat people and how different um, doctors learn how to treat people around them. So I think picking something up from everyone year round, whether it's bad or good, is always a good. Yeah, absolutely. You know, learning goods and bads and then really picking up those different files because you can take what you want and put it in yep. your basket and say, I want to do things like that or I never want to do. Right. Or let's let me tweak this because this is more my personality. You know, there's lots of different ways you can implement that um, just by learning just little bits and pieces from everyone. Yeah. So as an owner of multiple practices, what do you think are some of the really important skills that you have as an owner with lots of employees? So, yeah, employee management, you know, and there's two bad things about veterinary medicine, employee management and right the clients and so you need to learn how to interact with all kinds of clients whether that be different social statuses different you know racial groups it, you just need to know how to do that but as far as being an owner you have to really trust your employees so in in order to trust your employees you have to um, train them exactly how you want things done and without proper training and proper teaching they can't do things up to your standard so the big thing is to always make sure there's enough instruction out there so they can do the test properly and also make sure that everyone is working as a team. So I feel like as a business owner, employee management is very, very important, but it's also about making a team that is efficient and do things the way you want to. So kind of on the thread of efficiency, will you talk a little bit about time management and the importance of your team managing managing it appropriately and really keeping the clinic flowing on time. Right. So there's a couple aspects of time management. First is everybody has a life outside of work and outside of veterinary medicine. So you need to be very in tune to your employees' requests. And so every in our practices, whether it's the emergency clinic or the large animal services, families come first. So we always rearrange schedules around that, um, kids' schedules, if you're sick or your kids are sick or whatever. And so uh, family is comes number one no matter what. But then as far as efficiency in workflow, um, let's take the large animal side, for instance. If you have four or five different field calls, meaning where you got to go look at a cow here or a goat here or whatever, you need to try to schedule those around a time where you're not driving from one end to the counting twice. So try to schedule them in, in accordance of how you can do it um, to break down your mileage. And then of course, you can be a better producer as a veterinarian if you just do all the calls at the barn, you know, at your large animal facility. In the small animal emergency world, um, it's very chaotic and very busy and so, our technicians are the most highly trained as far as efficiency. We, we do all the advanced diagnostics on all the patients that require it. And so it's about 
getting everything done in a certain order, as well as we kind of have a, you know, the doctors know we try to get people in, in and out in less than an hour, which is really hard in the emergency world. Um, and if not, we need to call in extra help so people aren't overwhelmed. Yeah, that's awesome. I love to hear about the family aspect in your practice and how important that is to you all. Uh, so tell us what you were like in vet school. What type of student were you? What activities were you involved in? That is so funny because my classmates would probably tell you different things, but I was very involved in vet school. I, even though I worked uh, on the weekends and stuff as an EMT, I was like, I was, you know, I had roles in the bovine club, the swine club, all the large animal clubs I was involved in. And so when you have officer roles in that, you're, you stay very busy. As far as what kind of student I was, I was more of a I do better if I listen than if I take notes kind of thing. And so um, I was an active learner, per se, a hands-on learner versus taking notes. But I was very highly involved in all those extracurricular activities and um, just really busy. Yeah. Awesome. So did you take advantage of summer jobs and internships to help support yes, your education? absolutely. I think veterinary students have a huge... Um, chance during their summers between their first and second, second, third years to really learn or like hone in on skills. Me in particular, I spent my summers on a feedlot. So I did research on railed cattle. Um, I worked on, you know, just basic nutrition and doctoring skills. And then I, you know, did a research paper. And so lots of hours waking up at five in the morning to go process some cattle that just came in. So those are my summers in veterinary school, but there's lots of opportunities for no matter what you want to do to get out. Yeah. What was the funnest research project you ever ever? Oh, I would say um, my, my funnest was, I don't know if it's fun, but it was more intriguing as far as when to try to determine when is the perfect time to rail a calf that's chronic. Mm -hmm. And um, there's lots of necropsies to be had on there and lots of learning opportunities as far as the proper anatomy in, you know, a dead steer. And so getting to like get a hands on and do necropsies faster than anybody I've had. Yeah. Skilled it takes all that. Pretty, pretty fun. We always love to learn, right? So you have two boys at home. And so you and your husband, how calf. So what, other than your family and the cows, do you have any other hobbies? <laughs> That's so funny because I'm like, my hobby are my children, right? Because they always run us to and from all their sports activities. But I actually, my passion is I have mares that we breed and we have some bulls on the ground. And so that is what I do. Um, it's an expensive, but very fun hobby. We're fixing to halt to break some weanlings. And so that'll be interesting, but that's crazy. But that's what I do. Yeah. I feel that. Very expensive hobbies, right? Yes, right, well, right. Expensive and fun. So quarter horses. Quarter horses, mm -hmm. yeah. Awesome. What's your favorite, how is your favorite mare bred? Honestly, this last year when we were building our large animal facility, I did not breed them back yet. So because uh -huh. we were waiting for all of our pins and everything yeah. to build. And with everything, all this supplies as far as pipe and everything being short supplied because of covid it was like a long drawn out process so yeah. i did not breed anything back this year oh. but a lot of them are bred to take a pick which is already yeah stuff, so. like take a pick mm -hmm. i was sick of pick 
pretty nice. We have a Sixes pick Philly at our house. Pretty nice. Yeah. So that's very, very exciting. It is. So that's fun. So what's your favorite food? Oh, geez. In the emergency world, it's whatever food you get to actually have time <laughs> to eat. And so I really like breakfast type food. Yeah. It's my like biscuits and gravy. Is that like my favorite food per yeah. se? Um, but yeah. Yeah. You have a favorite quote or saying? Well, nearly. I'm a big believer in one thing that we implement um, to our employees is, you know, no bullying, whether it's between clients and employees or employees, employees. And so we always really talk about do unto others as you would like done to you. And so we, we talk about that a lot because we really want to um, provide a positive working experience and finding the right team to fit that. And so we always are going back. Yeah. yeah. Old and roll, valuable quote. Mm -hmm. Yep. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, when you look back on your career, what's probably the most surprising thing that happened? And you look back and you're like, I never saw that coming. So my, we moved one year um, for my husband's job and I actually did zoo medicine for you. And so, which I never would have ever expected to do exotics, but we worked on elephants and giraffes and it, all the big cats, lions and tigers, and, you know, got to work with different types of monkeys. And so I would never, if looking at myself in veterinary school, I would never have chose exotics. But on a side note, I do a lot of exotics. <laughs> <laughs> like I see a lot of exotic patients that other people see. So it's really mm -hmm. funny how you just don't ever know what to expect or what you would like. Yeah, that's kind of the fun thing about veterinary medicine is that you think you know what's coming, but yes. it's always always different, always it's, changing. It's always changing, always different, and you all you think you know what you want, what you're going to do. But yep. I think your life is um, and your career is like a perfect example. You thought you were headed in one direction, and yep. you do a complete 180 and end up somewhere and kind of circle around to back to what you were wanting to do and intended to do and. Well, that's the thing about veterinary medicine you're constantly learning and if you're not constantly learning then you're standing still and so you can always perfect something else or do something different or i can do a certain procedure better you know there's always yeah. things to be learning and that includes working on yeah i mean i'm sure you never thought you'd be talking about cardio physiology yeah, cardio right? physiology to the first year vet right. students that's right but we do do a lot of that in the emergency world so. yeah so for our listeners, Janie is here in Amarillo today because she was teaching our first class about cardio physiology, which is awesome, right? It's, and that's one of the, our big advantages, I think, Texas Tech is that we have really awesome clinical partners that can come in and give lectures in cardio physiology and give a very real world look at it and how it applies to the world. And I think if my um, veterinary classmates would have ever thought I would be teaching cardiophysiology, they would laugh at me because I was such a cow that, like, you, you know, and I still yeah. am. But, yeah. like, back then, it was, it's just funny how the world turned. So, Absolutely. But it's great. The students are great. I'm excited for them as far as getting out there in their fourth year and getting them ready and prepared for their jobs. Yeah. Yeah. We're, I think we're all looking forward to fourth year when we can. I'll get on clinic on the clinical floor and play yep. and have a good time, right? Work some bulls. Work some bulls, palpate some cows, yep. you know, breed some mares, do all the fun things. <laughs> all the fun things. All the fun things. 
Um, any other questions that any questions that you thought we had asked today that we didn't? No, I just I'm excited to see what happens with those fourth year students as they can choose some core versus, you know, elective rotation. And mm -hmm. it, you know, not like we talked earlier, not every veterinarian does the same the things the same way. And so seeing different aspects and different um, you know, techniques. You know, I had a veterinary professor and that was a clinical professor and she did a calcium diagnosis. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, oh, a short or short arm people, that's excellent. Like that was amazing. And so yeah. like getting them to see not just one practice, but multiple different opportunities to learn how to do things. I think that's really good for them. Yeah. I think that's one thing that like I too had a professor taught me to do a diagnosis section. Um, and it's super cool to see different things. And what I'm really excited about is to have the opportunity for our students to go out and work in practices very similar to what they will be working yes. in, right? And so having that focus of rural and regional medicine, and so our students are prepared for the types of clinics that we put them back It'll in. It'll be good because they will get to see things that are just particular to this region and rural area. So, for instance, snake bites. You know, mm -hmm. we see a lot of snake bites on both the emergency side of the small animals and in horses. And so... Right. Some people from other states or whatever may never have to address that, but it's pretty prevalent here, um, you know, as far as that. And, you know, we have a lot of high performance horses in this area. So learning how to do certain tie-ups and that sort of thing on a with ease is going to be important. And so it's good for these students to be able to get out and actually see what, you know, regional stuff that they'll be able to take yeah. care of. You know, that's something that we are very blessed with here is that we have a plethora of resources. You talk about what the equine industry looks like and the cattle industry looks like and the just the awesome small animal practices that are very close to us. And we we're very blessed that we have a plethora of resources right at our fingertips. And that is something that really sets us above a lot of other places because we do have that many resources and so what's close. amazing in the panhandle area is there are tons of 4-h and fsa projects so mm -hmm. all those different pigs and goats and sheep and calves i mean th these students will be able to work on all different species at ease because in this community that you know their children are really involved in 4-h so and it'll teach the students to be involved in well so it's going to be really good as far as like getting to a plethora or a different variety of species um, and being versed and well-versed and able to handle it. Well, I think that's all the questions we have today, Janie. Anything else for the greater good? Jeez, I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea, but yeah, thanks for having me. We had fun today in class. Cardiophysiology is going to be kind of scary, but, you know, we'll start to put two and two together by the time they get to fourth year. So yeah. thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for this has been the Raider Vet Podcast. For more information, visit the Vet School's Facebook page or email us to svm at ttu.edu.